We have just a few weeks left in the book of Galatians. We have been taking our time working through it verse by verse, section by section. Uh, The reason, again, why we do that is uh, so that we can hear the whole gospel, the whole truth, all of the word of God, not just one little piece. Um, Because if I got to choose what I was going to preach on every single Sunday, it would be what I thought was awesome and what I'm used to preaching and what would make me feel good. That's my tendency. And so we go verse by verse, and that forces us to wrestle with things that maybe we are uncomfortable with. It forces us to deal with things in our own life that don't make us feel good. It forces us to deal with things in our life maybe that we didn't realize that we were being obedient to God. And in that, we find encouragement. We love the whole counsel of God. And as we've gone through the book of Galatians, um, he has taken four chapters to talk about how we are not saved by our works. There were some false teachers that had infiltrated the churches of Galatia and had been saying, well, you know, faith in Christ is good, but you need to be circumcised. You need to follow the law. You need to do these things to be a real Christian. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. There is nothing you can do in and of yourself in order to be saved, to be justified, to be made right in the eyes of God. There is no good works, no matter how much we try to obey the law, because as soon as we break one part of the law, we break the entire law, we are not good enough to save ourselves. And so we need Christ to do the works for us, to live that perfect life, and then to put that perfection upon us through faith, through grace, by Christ alone. And then he takes the last two chapters and says, well, do we want to talk about works? Okay, well then we need to talk about works from the Spirit. Not works that we do, but the works that God does through us. That we are changed from the inside out. You see, to be a Christian is to submit to God, through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. When we have faith, when we believe, God comes and dwells with us and he speaks to us. And so to be a Christian is to listen to and obey God's commands in all areas of our life. Not just one little piece, not just church, and then the rest of my life is mine. It's the entire life as a believer is affected by the commands of God. And so when sin is pointed out to us, we confess. When wrong thinking is corrected, we change our thinking. Paul uses the phrase, as we looked at last week, about works of the flesh in chapter 5, verse 19, to describe the sinful rebellion against God that is practiced and celebrated. And he gives a long list, and that's not even an entire list. He has other books of the Bible, he goes even further into further detail. Christ even adds more to it. But to have works of the flesh or to practice works of the flesh, it is disobedience that is repeated without concern, without conviction, and without regret. In fact, celebrated to the point where we encourage others to join us in that. And those who practice such things God says, do not inherit eternal life with God. But, again, the greatest word in Scripture, right? I love that word. This is true, but 
those who practice the works of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit inherit everlasting life in the holy presence of God. As Christians, we walk alongside one another when caught in and struggling with sin. We hold one another accountable to obedience to God. We restore one another with gentleness, Paul says, not diminishing the consequences of our sins, but encouraging and praying for one another through the trials and the temptations to sin so that we might better obey God. Again, not to earn our justification, not to earn our salvation. We've already been saved. We do it because we love God, because he has already saved us. But there is a danger for every one of us who's a believer to become conceited and boastful, comparing ourselves to those who sin and lying to ourselves that we would never, we would never disobey that way. Thank you, Lord, I'm not like that guy over there. I mean, he confessed his sin to me. Holy cow, that's a whopper. Thank you for not making me like him. But then when we compare ourselves to God, we realize we're just as sinful. I think last week what I said was, we like to boast, but we boast because we haven't been caught yet. We're just as sinful. When we sin, we're just as guilty as our brother or our sister in Christ. And so we must be careful to bear one another's burdens with humility not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to. For without the grace of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in us, our works would be of no use to us in making us right before God. It is His works in us that changes us. False teachers, again, were leading these churches astray to rely upon works of the law for their justification. But only the perfect work of Christ on our behalf actually justifies And once we're justified, then we are adopted into the family of God. We are full recipients of the inheritance promised by God, including God making his home within us. And through his power, he transforms us from one degree of glory into another, from the inside out. We can scrub the outside clean as much as we want, but if our heart is dark and sinful, it doesn't matter how good we look. Jesus says you are whitewashed tombs to the Pharisees. That's, we are clean on the outside and we're giving this impression of I'm a good Christian person. I obey God, but on the inside I'm full of dead man's bones. I'm rotten to the core. Something has to happen and that's what Christ does. He changes us from the inside out. Any ability to obey comes not from my pulling myself up by my bootstraps and working harder. That's where legalism and moralism falls apart. Like if you just do this, then you'll be a good Christian. It's no, you do this because you are God's child and he has empowered you to do them. And when we say I can't do it, then we're relying on the flesh. We're not relying on the spirit. He changes us and empowers us from the inside out. And so, Paul says today, that whatever we sow, we will also reap. For the one who sows, this is verse 8, for the one who sows in his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. As I said last week, just as an apple tree grows apples, So it is with those who are of the flesh and those who are of 
the Spirit. You want to see, is someone a believer? What's the famous phrase? You become a fruit inspector. Not what we think, but what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those nine things, do we see it in people's lives? Not perfectly, but is it growing over time? Do we love more now than we did a year ago? Do we, do we have more patience now than we did yesterday? Do we recognize that, man, I need to be more kind in what I say and try to be better in that? That's not me strap, uh, picking myself up from my bootstraps. That is relying upon the Spirit of God within me to change me. And so to sow to the flesh is to practice the desires and works of the flesh. That's sinful rebellion against God. And many who sow to the flesh believe that they will reap joy and love and peace and perhaps even eternal life in heaven. For God is a loving God, they tell themselves. And a loving God would surely send everyone to heaven, right? But according to the word of God, they will only reap corruption. What is this corruption? It's the opposite of what is reaped by those who sow to the Spirit. To sow to the Spirit is to reap eternal life. So to reap corruption is to reap eternal death. Eternal death. God is not mocked. He is not treated with contempt. To believe that one can disobey the commands of God, call evil good and good evil, to practice and encourage and to celebrate the works of the flesh is to treat the power and the majesty and the holiness of God with contempt and expect that a holy God will overlook such mockery, Paul says, is to deceive oneself. Do not be deceived. Now, why is he saying this? He's making a distinction between believers and unbelievers. Those who love God and those who hate God. He is writing this letter to believers and he's reminding them of who they are. He's reminding us as the church today, 2,000 years later, this is what it means to be a believer. You don't have to work. God has already worked for you, but gosh darn it, you better start living the life that God has called you to through his power, not your own. Don't mock God by what they were believing to do works of the law to save themselves was mocking God because God says you cannot do the works of the law and be saved. And they said, "Uh, I think you're wrong, God. I think I can. That's treating God with contempt. Maybe we should be a little bit more personal. Let's put it a little bit more personal tones. Should your boss or your teacher or your parents or anybody who's in authority over you, ask you to perform a specific task in a precise way for a specific reason, but then you mock them, you belittle them, you treat them with contempt as stupid, and then act with surprise when they discipline, punish, or even fire you for those, for what you did, is logically irrational. To be given a task... In this case, trust God, have faith in God, and you will be saved. And to say, 
No. It's to treat God with contempt and it's an irrational thinking. And yet, this is how many treat God. They act with surprise and utter astonishment when they hear that repeated and joyous disobedience to God results in complete corruption for all eternity in hell. They go, what? As if, like, it's the first time the church has ever said that throughout all of history. But through all the pages of Scripture, it all points in one direction to Christ. You cannot be good enough. And so I sent my son to die for you, to do what you could not do. And because of that, Paul is reminding the believers, because of what Christ did, then we do good. Three times Paul commands the Galatians to do good. That's one of, the, one of the keys. When you're studying a text and you see something repeated in a short period of time, more than once or twice, in this case three times, it's probably important. So what is he trying to get across? Well, the first time he speaks of doing good is in reference to the teacher-taught relationship. Okay, this is one of those things. I really don't want to talk about this, okay? I'm a teacher, you're the taught, okay? But it's scripture, so why is he putting this in there? Because to be honest, and I talked to the Bible study on Monday night, I said, this is a really weird place to put this. Like you're speaking of doing good, you're speaking of living by the power of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit coming out, you, uh, coming out through you and growing in you, and then all of a sudden saying, don't forget to pay your pastors. Like this is weird, right? But there's a purpose for it. For us today, most churches have structures in place that address the issue of supporting the local pastor of a congregation. But there was nothing like that in the first century. We have to remember that all of those in a local church were relatively new believers who probably came out of the system of pagan worship. Pagan priests charged individuals a fee to perform a ritual. No payment, no ritual, no ritual, no benefit. There was no passing of the offering plate or a box in the back of the room in which you could give a gift out of gratitude and joy. And so now imagine that you've come out of this type of system of worship into one where there are no fees required to take communion or to be baptized. Okay, one of the elders is not going to be standing next to the communion table saying, well, you can get it, but you've got to give at least 10 bucks. You would walk out rightfully, and I'd probably be right behind you, right? We don't do that. And so the tendency for the church then is to say, well, we don't, have to, we don't have to pay for these rituals. The tendency then would be to forget to support the local pastor whose main call was to rightly teach the truth of God's word. And so Paul reminds those who were taught to share all good things with the one who teaches. Be sure to care for the one who is shepherding you in the truth of the gospel message. This is what God's word says. You guys faithfully support me very well, and I'm very appreciative of that. I'm going to stop that conversation, okay? And then... As a bookend with verse 6, Paul says in verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Do good to all. And now the group has expanded from the local pastor to everyone. Well, who is everyone? It's everyone, right? It's all. It's anybody. 
in which the Christian has the opportunity to do good to them, neighbors, friends, family, strangers, believers, and non-believers, but he doesn't stop at everyone. He gives special recognition to the people of God. Do good to everyone, but especially don't forget your local church family. Because the assumption is, who are you spending the most time with? Who are you getting the most opportunity to share all good things with? The church. You're spending time with the, the body of Christ, with your church family. He calls the local church a household of faith, a household, a family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not a club. We're not a community center. That is not our call. We are members of one family, of one body. We are the people of God. And we are to do good to one another, he says, as we have opportunity. But what is the good that we are to do? It's to see and to act on the opportunity to offer material things or financial support to those who are in need. Yes, that is true, but it's so much more. It's not just meeting those financial and material and spiritual or emotional needs. The context of this chapter is to focus is the focus of the Christian on sowing to the Spirit, not to the flesh. And so doing good is more than just those material things. For the Christian, doing good means practically living out the fruit of the Spirit in our daily lives, keeping our eyes open for the opportunity to love someone, to be kind to someone, to show gentleness to someone. And doing good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith, not only because there is a need to be met, but because there is a need that the Holy Spirit reveals to us that He can meet through us. These Christians had no effect on Caesar. They had no opportunity to go before the emperor and start talking about like, well, you know, we'd like to see this happen, we'd like to see... Caesar, what needs do you have? What needs do you have? We want to meet those. They never had those opportunities, but they had opportunities with their neighbors. As believers, there are opportunities you are given that I will never have. I will never meet your coworkers. I may never meet your neighbors and vice versa. And so we come together, we worship God together, we go out and we try to live the life of Christ. We spread the kingdom by living out the fruit of the Spirit to all of those people around us that all the rest of us aren't ever going to have an opportunity. God has given us individually as families and as a church family, all three of those, the opportunity to share and show the fruit of the Spirit and the salvation that can be found through Christ. He's given us that opportunity Doing good is living out the growing fruit of the Spirit in us to point others to Him and not to us. 
I've said it a number of times. This is, this is Paul. This is kind of what he's getting at. He says this not in Galatians. He says in one of others, his other letters, what good is it for man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? So we, we give to those in need materially, not so that we might be given glory. Boy, how, how awesome is Mark? Or how awesome is Elm Creek? Oh, they are just so wonderful, isn't it? That as a church and as individuals, as believers, what we do is we share all good things to point them to Christ, to point them to Him. Because ultimately, whatever I have, who does it belong to? It belongs to Christ. And so I'm just giving what He has already given me. He actually owns this. And everybody says this, right? You can't take any of it to when you die. You can put whatever you want in that casket. It ain't going with you to the next life. We raise money we, or we save money. We do retirement and that's awesome and that's great, but then we die and it goes to our children. And eventually that money gets passed on to strangers that we'll never meet, right? And so we want to share these good things to bring glory to Christ, directing any praise away from us and even away from those who receive the gifts that we give and the good that we do to them, turning that away from them and putting their focus on Christ. The reality, though, because we got to get real here, right? Man, that's, that's awesome. It's idealistic. Oh, man, what a, what a perfect world we would live in. Heck, let's not even do world. Let's, what a perfect life I would live if I sought to do good to everybody because the reality is, is I struggle in that. There are times where I miss those opportunities because I'm so focused on myself. Or let's say we see a need and we're trying our best and through the power of God, we are, we're serving and we're doing good and we're tr- pointing people to Christ. But the reality is, is it's exhausting. I mean, let's just call it that, right? It's, it's hard. It's difficult. It's tiring. When we pour into our neighbor who hates God and hates us. God, I have a neighbor, when I first met him, he was, saw him over the fence, and he didn't even want to shake my hand. I forced him to because, you know, I'm a good loving guy, right? You know, it, we rarely talk. He tries to avoid me in, in one sense. And no matter how, how much I try, to show good to him. How can I help you? Hey, how are you doing? What's going on? You know, all those kinds of things. I get pushed aside. It's exhausting. It's tiring. And even those people who do accept the good that we do, what's the human tendency? They're vacuums. They just suck, and they suck, and they suck. And as Christians, we get tired, and we get tired, and we get tired. No, not only physically, but spiritually, because people can wear us out, especially when there's very little gratitude in return. And so we sow, and we sow, and we sow to the Spirit, and man, we're trying to trust in the Spirit. We're battling the flesh and the desire, going, you know what? So-and-so is not they're not even saying thank you for crying out loud, so I want to do nothing for them anymore because they are ungrateful. 
when we sow and we sow and we sow and we see no return, the plants are barely growing, let alone bearing any fruit for Christ. God reminds us that our faithful sowing of the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of those around us is not about an immediate harvest. This, say, well, what's the application? We need to, one, let go of ourselves, and two, we need to think long-term. Like, super long-term. We sow to the Spirit not for immediate results, but for eternal results. And usually we think of these eternal results as to do with God's saving others. And that's, that's true. We do good to point them to Christ so that they might be saved, hear the gospel message from our lips, be saved by the grace of Christ, and become part of the kingdom of God, become brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're one family. And that's all true. But the interesting thing here is Paul doesn't go that direction. He does that in other places. So don't hear that that's not true. In this case, he's talking to believers and he's reminding them, why do you do good to everyone? Why do you do good to anyone? Because the eternal harvest is about our salvation too. You say, well, that's very self-centered. If you look at it that way, but that's not what Paul's getting at. We faithfully sow because in due time we know that we will be in our Savior's presence for all eternity. Verse 9, if we do not give up. If we persevere to the end of our days in doing good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith, we will reap the harvest of eternal life in God's presence. We do good for God's glory, not ours. We do good because we know that no matter what happens, whether we get gratitude or not here on earth, this is not our home. We're going someplace else. July 4th weekend, Independence Day. Happy Independence Day. I, I, I love it. It's great. Barbecues, swimming, fireworks, remembering how as a country, where we started, all those things. Those are great. I'm proud to be an American citizen, but as a Christian, my citizenship is pretty teeny tiny in compared to eternity. I heard a, a sermon illustration um, just this past week. Like if we imagine that eternity uh, on a timeline, if we can make it on a timeline, that that wall to that wall is eternity. That's like what, 30 feet, 40 feet, I don't, I don't know, 30 feet, something like that. Okay. And then we look at our life and compare it to eternity. It's probably the width of a hair. And so when we get so caught up in the here and now as Christians, we're missing the point that God has placed us in this time and eternity for a specific reason, to give him the glory, this little width of a hair. And we need to remember that the glory that we will receive, the joy that we will receive, is going to happen for the rest of eternity. Our focus as Christians is not in the here and now. We enjoy this time. We battle sin. We live for God in this time that we have here on earth, but our mindset is always on the future. We live in the here and now, but we always think of what is to come. 
which is why you can burn this building down. You can refuse to allow us as God's people to worship and we will continue to worship. You will kill this body if you desire. You may put me to the, to the um, electric chair because of my faith, but I can go there with confidence because my mindset is on eternity. My mindset is beyond the here and now. We look to what is to come. We persevere to the end of our days. And God says, if you persevere, you will be saved. That's not, that's not saying, if you just do really hard, if you just work really hard, then, then you'll be saved. He's saying, no, God's people always persevere. They always persevere to the end. You might stray, you might become a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter, but when you come back, guess what? You're going to come back to Christ. You're going to persevere to the end. God is going to change your heart. He's going to open your eyes to how you have disobeyed and you will come to him. You will persevere. And Paul is reminding these Christians, what I'm asking you to do is difficult. But with the power of the spirit which resides in you, and the reminder that you're thinking of things to come and you're not in the here and now, you, you are God's children. You will be with him forever. This rightly places the focus of our life on walking by the Spirit, not for any immediate or short-term purpose, but for an eternal purpose. Namely, that we will one day forever be in the presence of our God who justified us and sanctified us. As God's people, we saw this last week, we're not alone. We are together in this. How do we do good? By the power of Christ in us, but also, also by the, the power of us as a people coming together through God's strength to be reminded to be reminded, to be reminded of why we exist. Why has God placed us here? It's for his glory. And so we're about ready to do communion. And if you notice, we're doing a little bit different than what we've done in the past, okay? We've, we've got the table over here. There is juice. There's wine. It's, it's, you don't have to guess. It's labeled, I promise, okay? Okay. Um, uh, one of the, one of the uh, elders, going to be two elders over there, they're going to hand out whichever one you want, and then the bread, they will hand it to you, so just put your hand out, and they'll, they'll give it to you. But usually what we think about with this is, hey, we've got, we've got, as a family, we need to remember what Christ did for us, and that's his command, absolutely, but we also need to remember who we are in Christ. So look around, like seriously, like take your time, look around, make everybody feel awkward, Okay, look around. If you are a believer in Christ, guess what? You're a part of the family of Christ. This right here is a dim image of what heaven is going to be, the household of faith reaping the eternal harvest of salvation, worshiping God together. But instead of a piece of bread and a small cup of juice, we will have a lavish banquet in the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, let us do good, living out the fruit of the Spirit through the power of God in us, anticipating the eternal life that we will reap in due time. That our focus is not here, but while we are here, 
we are called to remember about what is to come. So when you grab the juice and you grab the bread and you come, don't eat it there. Just sit down and as a family together, we will take it. So here's the requirements. You don't have to be a member of Elm Creek. You have to be a member of the household of faith. We don't have communion, please. That is between you and God. But I I warn you, as the Bible warns you, do not take this with contempt. To take this, the juice and the bread, and to say, nah, it doesn't really matter. It's just a ritual. It's to take the commands of God with contempt. And so take it with seriousness. Take it with joy. Take it with peace as a believer in Jesus Christ. So if you're not a believer, we ask, refrain from this. Refrain from taking it with us. But if you are a believer, you're welcome to join us. We want to do open communion is what we we call it. And as a family, we'll all come and sit down with our drinks and we'll sit down with the bread. And then as one family, we will take it together, remembering what Christ did for us, but remembering, remembering what we are called to. Remembering that we could do good because of what Christ did for us, the power within us, and remembering what's going to happen in the future. That we do not live for the here and now. Whatever may happen, we look to eternity as God's people. So whenever you're ready, you could stand up, work your way around the back, and then you might have to go behind the soundboard, and then start your line here, grab your, the, the juice or the wine and the bread, and then make your way up front here and go back to your seat. And then once everybody is finished, then we'll take it together as a family. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's go. Let's do this communion with Christ.